So the other day, I bet you've had an experience like this, maybe even recently. The other day, uh, I got all my kids together and I said to them, kids, I need you to go and clean your bedrooms because apparently my kids don't instinctively keep their bedrooms clean. I don't know why, but they don't. And so they cleaned their bedrooms and I went and I checked their bedrooms and, and they said, Daddy, is my bedroom clean enough, and one of my children in particular, who will not be named, I checked their bedroom, and it looked good, and I turned around to walk out. I was about to walk out of the bathroom, and they called my name again, and it felt as though in that instance between turning away and turning aback, their once clean bedroom was already messy again. I swear there were new things already on the floor. Or take my youngest son, Asa. If you've seen him, you know he has this glorious head of hair that just jumps all over the place. And it seems, whenever I give Asa a bath, and I scrub the hair very well because it's blonde, and it gets dirty, it gets messy. It seems like the moment I've got his hair clean, he heads straight downstairs, and I swear he just pours syrup right onto his head and rubs it in and makes it all sticky and gross again. It seems like no matter how much cleanliness or organization I try and create in my home, it almost instantly goes away. And this, this example of, you know, albeit somewhat small things, even if they are quite frustrating, it actually, I think it points to something even bigger and more consistent in our lives. Namely, that so much good in our lives is frustratingly temporary, right? I mean, because sure, Ace's clean hair or my other kids' clean bedrooms is one thing. I mean, but think about your relationships. It seems like the moment you've got your relationship finally in a good place where there's communication and listening and care, something comes in and puts at risk, that healthy relationship. Or think about your finances. The moment you've got your budget in place and you've got, you know, some funds saved up in case of emergency, it feels like some unexpected thing comes up and causes some decay in the strength of your finances. Or think about just the general path and trajectory of your life, whether it be your career pursuits or the family you're building. It feels like you take one step in a good direction, but then the unexpected comes in and it makes the good that was once there frustratingly temporary. It just goes away. And, and, and that all just points at this existential experience we all know, I think, deep down. There is something frustrating about things that don't last. We just would much rather have things stay and remain and endure, but we live in a world where things spoil or fade or perish. It's interesting because there's a flip side to that. For as much as temporary things and their fading is frustrating, at the same time, there's also something captivating about things that endure. We look at all the ancient civilizations who have built these great buildings and architectural feats like the pyramids or like Stonehenge or I actually found online an ancient temple that dates back to 3000 BC. Humans who 
built something that lasted 5,000 years. And there's just something captivating about that. But here's the thing. This frustration with the temporary, this captivation with things that endure, it creates a bit of a tension. Because while we desire for things to endure, we desire to be part of things that endure, we desire to build things endure, at the same time we look at the world around us, we look at our lives, and there's so much frustratingly temporary. And what it reveals to me is that human beings, deep in our bones, every single one of us, we have a longing for what is lasting. This tension, this longing, this frustration, you can see it show up in all sorts of different places. There's actually an ancient author in our Bible that talked about this very thing. Uh, If you go and read the book of Ecclesiastes, you know that the author reflects on and mourns how so many things seem to pass away and go away and get ruined. And the author of Ecclesiastes makes a somewhat depressing conclusion. They look at the world around and they say, because everything passes away, therefore, it's all meaningless. Meaningless. He calls it a chasing after the wind. That's his question, or sorry, that's his answer to a question that I think all of us have to come up with some response to at some point in our lives. Namely, if we have a longing for what's lasting, we love and we're drawn to and we're captivated by things that endure, and yet we live in a world where so much that is good is frustratingly temporary, and that creates this tension, this frustration, this angst. Well, the question is, what do we do with all this frustration? Do we just throw in the towel, like the author of Ecclesiastes, and say it's all meaningless, do whatever you want? Or is there some better way that we can respond when you feel, and when I feel, this frustration that is so uncomfortable in our lives? Well, like we always do here, when we have these big, meaty questions that we want to find some answers to, We look to one place. See, because I think the best answers to the biggest and most important questions in the world, the best answers are usually not found by just looking at my life or the world around me. The best answers are not found by modern science or new research or statistical analyses, but rather the best answers are the ones that have stood the test of time. See, because the big questions of life Even though they always come in new circumstances for each new culture or new person or new, uh, you know, historical era, even though they come in different circumstances, the big questions of life are actually the exact same questions, generation after generation. This question of frustration, what do we do with all this frustration? The ancient Israelites were deeply familiar with that question, and so as we seek an answer, maybe one that's a little more hope-filled, that's a little more comforting, We're going to seek it by looking at the story of ancient Israel, their ongoing relationship with their God, with your God, with my God, with the God who invites all of us to know him. And here's my hope. My hope is that the answers that ancient Israel discovered might be answers that give guidance and meaning to your life and to my life today.
Um, if you've been with us the last couple weeks, uh, just a little reminder. If you haven't, I'd really encourage you to listen to the messages from the last couple weeks of this sermon series. But what we've been doing is we've been following a particular, particular uh, period in the life of these people, the ancient Israelites. And that's the time period when one of their prophets, a man named Isaiah, was speaking the words of God to the people of God. You can read these words in the book of Isaiah, one of the great Old Testament books. It traces huge chunks of the history of the people of Israel. And here's the broad arc of the story that we've found so far. The story starts long before Isaiah was born, where Israel was chosen by God so that Israel would be God's people. And what God said to Israel is, I am going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to others. Because, as we talked about last week, God always accomplishes his purposes in cooperation with his people. God always accomplishes his purposes by inviting the participation of his people. God doesn't just say, I'm going to work unilaterally, get out of my way. God always says, will you work with me? And so this blessing came, became a reality. The Israelites, they got a nation, they grew and they became strong and they'd be great. And that nation had some of the first truly just and equitable and compassionate laws that any nation has ever had. The laws of ancient Israel continue to have influence in modern legal systems that seek justice even today. And sure enough, they were blessed and they became a blessing to others. But then things went bad because Israel turned their back on God. As we talked about the very first Sunday of Advent, they walked themselves right into a period called the exile. Because of Israel's disobedience, a foreign empire, the Babylonians, conquered Israel, took them from their homes, scattered them about the empire, and destroyed their capital city, also the heart of their religion, the city of Jerusalem, and their sacred temple in Jerusalem. And so Israel was crying out in their suffering during the exile. And God heard their cry, and he responded to them by promising them one of the greatest promises in all of Scripture. God said, comfort. I will give you comfort and speak tenderly to you and restore you. And so, sure enough, they came, or God, they were brought back to God. And what would be really great, and what we see in all the movies and books that we often read today, is it would be really great if the story ended there. They were blessed by God. They turned away from God. There was tension. But then they came back and they walked into the sunset happily ever after. Man, wouldn't that be a great place to end the story. But that's not what happened. But rather, after they were again blessed to be a blessing to others, they yet again turned their backs on God. And we found out that this didn't happen just once. This didn't happen just twice. But this became a cycle that would repeat itself over and over and over again. Maybe a cycle that you've even seen in your own life. This cycle of faithfulness in God followed by unfaithfulness. This cycle followed by pursuing that which is good and just and right, followed by a period of pursuing what is selfish and maybe even hurtful to others. It's a cycle that is so frustrating because it points out 
just how temporary good things can be in our lives. And that frustrating uh, cycle points out, again, this longing that we have. And so just like you and just like me, Israel lived a cycle of faithfulness and unfaithfulness that created a longing for something lasting. It pointed up what I think was probably already there, that let's be done with all of this back and forth and up and down, and when are we finally going to put that cycle behind us and start something permanent? Well, it turns out that the cycle of faithfulness and unfaithfulness that we first read in Isaiah 40, our first Sunday of Advent, that we learned more about in Isaiah 58, that repeats itself over and over in the life of Israel, and the longing it creates, that longing is exactly what the prophet Isaiah speaks about towards the very end of his book. In just a minute, we're going to read in Isaiah chapter 61. I'd encourage you, if you have a Bible, to go ahead and find that right now uh, so that you can read with us. But see, what happened was God's people felt this frustration. God's people wanted this longing. And so the prophet spoke words of God to his people that began to give a hope that the longing would someday be fulfilled. And one of the great passages describing this future day and cultivating this hope, one of the great passages of Scripture is Isaiah 61. I'd invite you Uh, either on the screen or in your Bibles, to read Isaiah 61 with me now. The prophet said, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. In this passage, we get images from God meant to build in us a hope for that day when the cycle will be broken and something lasting will finally take its place. And it's interesting that the images throughout this scripture are images of something that endures. I mean, consider that. Oaks of righteousness. I mean, do you have an oak tree in your yard? Or have you seen one of the giant oak trees somewhere across the country in America? An oak tree is an image of something that will not be shaken. It is permanent. God is providing a hope for his people. And that hope takes more shape 
and more specific form throughout time. Isaiah speaks about it in many places, and other prophets throughout Scripture speak about it in many places. And it comes to the point where there's not just an idea, not just a concept, but the hope becomes specific in a person. Where God starts to say that someday he will send a person to earth. And that person will be the one that finally puts an end to the cycle and replaces it with something that endures. And that person creates great expectation in the lives of the people. That person was called the Messiah and Israel began to have great messianic expectations expectations of God. When will your promised one, your Messiah, finally come? Now, here's the interesting thing. When you and I hear the word Messiah, we might think about celebrations of Christmas. We might think about the way that we celebrate, even as we prayed this morning, God with us. And we believe that Jesus came to earth as God's Messiah, his promised one. He came to forgive sin, to wipe away the power of sin and the stain of sin in our lives, to break the power of sin in our world. We know that. And so Advent and Christmas are great celebrations of that which we know to be true. However, from the time Isaiah spoke these first messianic images until the day that Christ came was a very long time. And as a matter of fact, Israel had many prophets. And if you count the time from the very last ministry of the last prophet of the Old Testament, until the time Christ was born, it was around 400 years. Think about that for a second. Imagine you live in Israel. Maybe imagine you live in Israel in 200 BC, or even 100 BC, or even 5 BC. And imagine, like all of Israel and like us today, you have this longing. You're frustrated with the cycle and you're longing for the day it will be put to an end. And you believe that the God who promised he'll send his Messiah, you believe that is the day the cycle will be broken and finally God's new day will begin. You believe that. But imagine what it would be like Maybe gather around a fire with your family, passing on to your children or grandchildren these stories, these hopes of the Messiah. Imagine what it would be like to say yes. And we heard that promise made 200 years ago. Yes, we heard that promise made 300 years ago. Yes, we heard that promise made 400 years ago. Imagine what it would be like to be the fourth, fifth, sixth generation passing on these hopes. I can only imagine that along with your hope for your longings to be fulfilled, there might also be some creeping doubt, some deep questions of, have we misplaced our hope? Is our God not going to do what he promised? When will that day finally come? I mean, just imagine what it's like to feel in your bones the length of time Israel has been waiting. Maybe you don't have to imagine. Maybe you know what it's like to feel like you're waiting longer than you can endure and your hope is starting to crumble. Do you know what that would be like? 
Again, interestingly for us, we make a big emphasis on Christmas Day, the day that Christ was born and God demonstrated that he is with us. But the truth of the matter is, Christmas Day wasn't a big celebration for quite a while in the history of Jesus' followers. And that's because the day Jesus was born, not many people heard about it. Not many people knew about it. And even more so, right after Jesus was born, as we'll read on, in, on Christmas Eve during that service, right after he was born, Jesus' parents had to flee and they moved to Egypt for about the first 14 years of Jesus' life. And so Jesus' birthday and childhood were completely unknown. Nobody knew that the Messiah had come, or very few people at least. Rather, the day that many people first heard about, the day that for many Christians marked the significance, the beginning of, might this be the time that the Messiah comes, that day was actually the day Jesus announced publicly his ministry here on earth. It was only about three years that he did a public ministry, but we know that those three years had an impact that would uh, come into the lives of millions of people for thousands of years across the whole planet. And it's interesting. Because on that day that Jesus announced his public ministry, I'm sure he thought to himself, how am I going to make it known that this is the, the day that God's promises are going to finally be fulfilled. Well, it turns out that a bunch of the people who were there and saw it firsthand, they wrote it down. And their firsthand eyewitness accounts got copied and passed down generation after generation so that you and I can actually read a firsthand account of what Jesus said on the day that he proclaimed God was going to fulfill his promises. It's pretty incredible. First-hand eyewitness account from 2,000 years ago. And here's how the story went. And here's what Jesus did on that day. You can find it in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, starting in verse 16. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. So again, imagine this setting. Jesus is in a Jewish synagogue. Probably most of the people there had been raised in a school where they memorized the Hebrew scriptures from a young age. They quite likely may have memorized all of Isaiah 61, have known it in their hearts, and they probably knew that the words the prophet Isaiah spoke, they were some of the first words of God telling his people 
Somebody's going to come. There's going to be a person, there's going to be a Messiah someday who's going to come and break this cycle, undo the frustration, and finally fulfill your longings for something that endures. And so imagine you're one of the Jewish people in the synagogue that day. And some stranger walks up. He gets handed the scroll of Isaiah. Maybe he asked for that scroll, maybe not. And he unrolls it and this stranger reads the words of the prophet. These words that bring up all those generations. Hundreds of years, 400 years, maybe even longer. We've been longing and hoping and waiting And all of the people in the synagogue that day are looking at Jesus. They don't know who he is. They don't know what he's doing. They don't know anything about him. And they're thinking to themselves, why are you reading that scripture? We know we're hoping for this Messiah. We know we're longing for it. Why in the world would you read that to it? Are you just trying to rip the band-aid off the wound and make us feel even more how long it's been? And we know they're looking at him because it said their eyes were fastened on him. What is Jesus going to say next? And sure enough, he looks at them and says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus says, those promises That somebody is going to come and proclaim good news, freedom, release. Somebody is going to come and make oaks of righteousness in a world filled with injustice. Jesus says, that day has come because that person is me. But that's a pretty radical claim. Because at this point, nobody knows who Jesus is. He hasn't done anything yet. He hasn't taught anything yet. He hasn't proven anything yet. He just set a high bar where every single eye in the whole of Judaism is going to be fixed on him, going, if you claim that you're the Messiah, you're going to have to prove that is true. And sure enough, that's exactly what Jesus would do for the next three years of his life. He would do it by the way he taught as one with authority. He would do it by the way he lived with radical compassion and love, For people, because he believed all people were created in the image of God. He proved it in the way he performed mighty works and miracles, healing those who were sick of many affirmities. And he would do that all while explaining exactly what God meant by his promises in the Messiah. And Jesus explained that with one central term that was actually the thing Jesus talked about more than any other thing. It was the focal point of everything Jesus was doing. We hear him introducing this idea. Uh, It was an idea that he made fresh and new, but had been in Judaism for a long time. He announced it at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, when he said here, as in many other places, Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The kingdom of heaven, this idea that God's ways, which are perfect in God's realm, they have now come down here to be among us. In other places, Jesus called it the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the dome, or it's the realm within which God's ways are the way. 
Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God, and the kingdom is that thing which will endure and which will replace the frustrations of this broken world with finally the things of God that last forever. This image of the kingdom that Jesus spoke about, empowered by Jesus' Holy Spirit, which he spoke about at the end of the life, this image of the kingdom was so powerful that pretty much all of his disciples, after Jesus left earth, pretty much all of his disciples in the letters they wrote to one another, they spoke about the kingdom of God. They spoke about it sometimes specifically referencing the kingdom, and they spoke about it all the time with different allusions and analogies that we know were meant to point back to the kingdom of God. Let me give you just a couple examples of some of the lofty language that Jesus' followers used to write about the kingdom of God. Language that clearly referenced these Old Testament messianic hopes and also believed that Jesus was who he claimed to be, the Messiah God had promised. Here's one author who wrote a letter that we call the Hebrews. We don't know much about the author, but we know they were writing to a group of Jewish Jesus followers. And in Hebrews chapter 12, the author says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. A kingdom that cannot be shaken. I mean, almost like a kingdom as strong as a mighty oak tree. A kingdom that cannot be shaken is a kingdom that we know is going to endure. Or here's another one of Jesus' followers. Peter, who was kind of the leader of the disciples, one of the three men closer to Jesus in friendship than anyone else during his life on earth. Peter doesn't speak Uh, about the kingdom in specific. He doesn't say the kingdom, but he references it with other images that we know all are referring to the kingdom. Images like new birth and new life and our inheritance. That inheritance is God's kingdom given to us. Here's how Peter describes it. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. An inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. It's like Peter's saying, remember that longing that we've had for hundreds of years. Remember what it feels like to be so frustrated with how long we have to wait with that cycle of faithfulness and unfaithfulness. Remember how frustratingly temporary the good and the justice of this world seems to be. Remember that longing we have. Well, the kingdom of God is that thing God has given us which finally will replace that cycle will end that frustration and will begin something that never ends. And sure enough, all of Jesus' disciples committed their lives to joining Jesus in the work he began and saying, I'm going to be part 
of something that lasts. And this is where, every week, having considered the choices and the words and the lives of people long ago, we decide about your life and my life, and we say, so what's your move going to be? And here's the invitation and challenge we've given all along. First of all, the foundational thing I want you to think about, to keep thinking about, to wake up every morning and think about, to put into your planner, to put into your calendar on your computer, to talk to your husband or your wife or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your mom or your dad about. The thing that I want this Advent to be all about is first this question. Will you prioritize God's presence? Will you prioritize his presence by engaging in the powerful practices of stillness and silence? Practices that are counterintuitive and countercultural in our busy, noisy, constantly plugged in world. But don't get me wrong, stillness is not weak. Stillness is a powerful weapon that we can use to find the comfort we long for. But when we're still, like we talked about last week, and we hear that still, small voice of God, we know God's going to invite us to another countercultural practice. In a world where people like to puff up their images and make ourselves look better than always, God invites us to respond to his presence with a countercultural act of confession, where we finally stop striving to be good enough, and instead, we just admit that we're not good enough, so that God's strength can be good enough in and through us. Will you prioritize God's presence? But it doesn't just end there. Because why is it that we want to prioritize God's presence? We prioritize God's presence so that your life will be aligned with something that will endure. So that finally amidst all this frustration that I know you feel, that I know I feel, this frustration that shows up in small ways like, come on kids, keep your room cleaned. That shows up in big ways like, ah, it felt like my marriage was finally healthy, but I see the cracks again. This frustration that is so existentially painful in our lives, we can finally find the comfort and the hope that we need by aligning our lives with something that will endure. And it will endure not just for a day, not just for a week, but the kingdom of God will endure forever. Think about that. What would your life be like? What would our community life be like? What would our communities around us be like if all of us made it a priority to put God's presence first in our life. Priority means prior to, beforehand. And by putting God's presence first, we then know that more choices, more actions, more decisions, more moments, more days, more of our life can be aligned with something that will endure forever. Think about what that would be like inside to say, I know that I'm living my life part of something that will never perish. Because here's what we know. Here's what Jesus taught and what his disciples have experienced. Disciples have experienced generation after generation. Everything we do that joins God in building his kingdom will last forever. Everything you do, every choice you make, every word you speak, 
every act of generosity with your time, with your finances, with your abilities, every act of compassion, every pursuit of justice, everything we do that joins God in building his kingdom will last forever. I was trying to think of how to uh, wrap up this sermon, and I was sitting at my desk. And I looked down and I realized that where I sit every day, this is my desk, um, where I sit every day is a beautiful illustration of exactly that. See, this desk uh, was given to me by, and first, long ago, it was built by my grandpa, my dad's dad. And one day my grandpa called me up. He was moving out of his home in Grand Rapids, Minnesota, the town where I was born and grew up, the home that he'd lived in for decades. He was moving out of that home into an assisted living facility uh, down outside St. Paul, Minnesota. And so he was selling or giving away or uh, just sort of handling all of the things in his home. And my grandpa called me and he said, Carl, you know that desk in my basement? And right away I said, yeah, Grandpa, I know exactly the desk because every time I went to your house and played pool, the desk was right there in the corner. This was the desk where he would plan the hunting and fishing trips that he took my dad on when my dad was a kid or he took me on when I was a kid. This is the desk where my grandpa would spend so many hours of his life and actually because of that, um, I found a map recently. You probably can't see it, but I have it under the glass of my desk. It's a map of some of the border lakes in northern Minnesota. It has my grandpa's handwriting on it with some pencil marks of some of his favorite fishing spots on these lakes in northern Minnesota. So my grandpa said, Carl, do you want the desk? <laughs> and I thought, yes, of course I want the desk. And now this desk sits in my office and every day I get to sit at it, studying, writing, continuing to join you in God's mission for our church. And here's the thing. The reason I love doing work at my grandpa's desk is not because it functions any better as a desk. I could get plenty of desks that function perfectly well. But because when my grandpa gave me this desk, he also gave me the chance to participate in something that would endure. And here's my question for you. If it's easy for you to imagine, because I bet it is, if it's easy for you to imagine how much joy it brings me to get to work at my grandpa's desk because I get to be part of something that endures in my family, if it's easy to imagine the joy and the excitement and the meaning that comes by participating in something that has lasted one generation and might last a couple more generations, how much more significant will it be when you participate with God, in building his kingdom that will endure forever. Would you pray with me now? God, we confess that there is so much frustration and discomfort because of how temporary so much of the good in this world seems to be. And we confess that that frustration is often more than we can handle when it shows up in small ways and when it shows up in giant and overwhelming ways. God, show us 
not by our own strength, not by our own commitment, not by our own force of will, but because of the power of your presence in our lives, show us how to live our lives joining you in building your kingdom. God, Advent and Christmas is a season of generosity. I pray that you'd show us how to take the financial resources you've given us, whatever money we have, and learn the joy of giving generously to others, knowing that when we give our finances generously to others, we are helping build your kingdom that will never fade. Lord, during this Christmas season that's often full of celebrations or uh, traditions or different parties, maybe albeit virtual this season, Help us to look at the time we have and show us, God, how can we use our time and commit it to joining you in building your kingdom that will endure forever. God, as we think about all the abilities and the resources that you've given us, the passions of our heart and the opportunities in our lives, help us to use all of the gifts you've given us, everything who we are, every ability we have, and use it to join you in building your kingdom so that we might know, God, that our lives are being spent joining you in building something that will last forever. And now as we worship God, continue to give us a vision of that glorious kingdom you invite us to help you build, of that peaceful presence that you promise is with us. Help us to prioritize your presence in our lives this Advent. Amen.